Welcome to Thriving Entrepreneur with your host, Steve Kidd, third-generation minister and 30-year business coach. Listen in as amazing, world-changing authors, speakers, and coaches share their struggles and victories, and hear from best-selling authors' insight into how you, too, can live your life as a thriving entrepreneur. This is Steve. Welcome to Thriving Entrepreneur. Thanks for being with me here today. I appreciate you so much. I'm so grateful for every time we get to be together. It truly is a blessing and an honor to be here with you as we talk about ways that you can live your life as a thriving entrepreneur. You can thrive in your life, in your business, in everything that you do. You can feel like you're thriving in it. Now that doesn't mean that every day is perfect. Some days are extremely challenging. Some days make us wonder, what it's all about. But even in those days, we can maximize while it's called today, and we can be the best us that we can be. I have two amazing international best-selling authors that have written great books that help us really be able to see just how important being prepared, ready, And then available to do the thing that you do can be. And to, and yes, both of these authors are are what I would call extreme patriots in a very good way. Um, And how you can be 100% you and be 100% the patriot for your particular country. Whether you're here in the United States or you live in another country. To love your country, to serve it, to do the things that are you being genuinely you you thriving as an entrepreneur, but you also taking opportunities, learning, growing, and being, uh, you know, sometimes a shade tree for other people, other times a light to help people, but always someone who has enlightenment, if you will. In other words, an open mind enough to be able to say, absolutely, yes, I am a patriot, I love my country. I love what I do for my country. Here is what I know. And be open to a conversation. And then just simply share what you know. See, here's the coolest thing I know is that people who have done the most amazing of things and, oh my gosh, this first author, you're going to be blown away by his story. Uh, People that have done the most amazing things like him, they are some of the most humble um, un, you know, unbraggadocious, that's not the right word, but you know, you get the idea of people that I know. They are just, this is who I am. And on that particular day, this is what I did. And this is the impact that it had. They're okay with the fact that they're human and they have flaws and faults. They're willing to talk with you about your opinions. But at the end of the day, They're also very willing to strongly stand up and say, this is what I believe, and I believe it because of what I've been through and what I know. Discourse and conversation is so powerful for us. And one of the biggest secrets to living as a thriving entrepreneur is when we can have really good conversations and we can collect powerful information like it's gold, because it is, And then take that information and say, hey, this is what happened on that day. These are the things that the people involved in it knew that I didn't know until they told me. And then we can temper what we think and what we feel with it and often come to a place of real respect and admiration for a person like this upcoming author who has done so much for our country and been through some of the most significant of events in our country. Uh, If that isn't a lead-up, I don't know what is. I'm so excited to bring this first guest to you. We're not even going to do a first commercial break. We're going to jump right into it. Um, Both of these interviews are a little longer than normal because both of these guests just had so much good stuff to say. I just really want you to listen, hear the story of one of the most momentous occasions 
in the United States and then imagine what it would be like to be in their shoes and go through what they went through on such a significant day in the world. Join me in welcoming Brigadier General Kelvin Kopek. Hey, how are you doing today, Kel? I'm doing just great, Steve. How are you today? I am doing so well. I'm so excited about your book. I've been looking forward to it for a really long time. Been telling people about it for a little while now. Um, but uh, first, before we get into the book, tell us a little bit about you and your background. Okay, um, so I was born into a military family. My dad was in the Coast Guard, served in World War II on the USS South Dakota, born in Pennsylvania. We moved around a little bit to New Jersey, then to Hawaii, then pretty much settled down in South Florida, where my dad retired. And I went to grade school and junior high school and high school there uh, in the 1960s, which, as you know, is a turbulent time in the country. Uh, during that time frame, I received an offer from the Air Force Academy to, to apply to them to see if I could get in, get an appointment. And as luck would have it, uh, based upon my swimming credentials, probably my academic credentials to a degree, they accepted me. And in 1970, the summer of 1970, went off to the Air Force Academy. Uh, I'd never been to Colorado before, never been west before other than going to Hawaii on the trip to Hawaii when, when we lived there. And so it was pretty much a shock to the system to go to the Air Force Academy in the 1970s. As you know, the Vietnam War was still going on at that point in time. Uh, a lot of Academy graduates were flying uh, over in Vietnam at the time. Some were being shot down, captured. And so that was a very big influence during those early years at the academy because they were preparing us not only to get our education and to become uh, second lieutenants in the Air Force, but preparing us for potentially going over into the war and being captured. And the summer programs were pretty rigorous at that point in time, and I'm sure they still are today. Uh, we went through a simulated prisoner of war camp environment during the summer programs that as a you know, 17, 18 year old were a very big shock to the system. But then getting through that first year and that first year and a half, things started to settle down a little bit and finished up my time at the academy, was able to get through. And um, unfortunately, my eyes had deteriorated and I was unable to go to any kind of flying training at that time, at least not directly. I probably could have asked for a waiver. So I chose missiles. Uh, ICBMs were, were interesting at the time. The, the Minuteman III had just come into being. And uh, I was getting married. My wife would, wanted to stay in the Western United States, and that's where most of the missile bases were. So everything kind of lined up pretty good for me to go to missiles. And also at that time, one of the lures of going into missiles was the Minuteman Education Program, whereby the Air Force would schedule that as part of your normal duty. They would pay for the, for the uh, master's degree, and that would be part of your job would be to go to class. So all that lined up really nice, and I said, I think I will do that. Um, and we went off to Vandenberg Air Force Base in California for training, and then up to Malmstrom Air Force Base in Montana for my initial um, assignment as a missile launch officer. From there, things just moved along through a career. Uh, I don't know how much detail you want me to go into with that. And ended up uh, on September 11th, 2001, that I was the Director of Intelligence at Strategic Command in Omaha. On that day, we were undergoing the last day of a large nuclear exercise, an annual exercise that the Strategic Command and before that SAC would undergo to test the system, put a stress on the system, just to make sure when the real thing happened, you'd be prepared. And morning of September 11th, we were in the last day of our exercise, which is when uh, our adversary, uh, fictional adversary for the exercise, 
would launch their nuclear weapons against the United States, we would then retaliate with our so everything was at a heightened state of readiness on that day, including having uh, bombers loaded with nuclear weapons, submarines were in their launch areas, ICBMs were ready to launch in a very short period of time. And this was on the morning of September 11th. The doomsday planes, as they are sometimes called E-4Bs, were launched as part of the exercise. And that led to some conspiracy theories because one of them flew over the White House and CNN, I believe it was, had a video of it and People were saying, well, why would they have these airplanes already launched if the, uh, if the United States didn't know that these attacks were going to take place? Of course, we did not know. Uh, and we had no inkling that attacks that morning, but we were prepared as strategic command because we were in the middle of the exercise. Our strategic forces were ready because we were in the middle of the exercise. So uh, as the morning unfolded, we all were in the battle staff area and just started to participate in the conferences that were taking place with the National Military Command Center, with the Pentagon, with the White House, just trying to understand what was unfolding before our eyes. In that process, we, we had uh, eight large screens were uh, up in the command center and two of those screens we had NBC and CNN on. So we were getting information, really timely information from the news media than we were getting from our intelligence feeds. Because intelligence feeds take a little while to, to develop and, and, and to, uh, to analyze. But even with the intelligence feeds, we weren't seeing anything. We weren't seeing anything from the, uh, our adversaries, strategic forces. We, look, we constantly monitor them for movement of their troops, for increases in their communications for changes in their leadership uh, location as well. We weren't seeing any of that. So we had a pretty good idea that it was not a state actor that was causing the havoc that morning, but it was more terrorist related. Although at that point in time, we still didn't know what that terrorist uh, relationship was. And we were fielding a lot of questions from the strategic forces. Like I said, we're at a high state of readiness. They kept calling us saying, what's going on? What do you know? What are we supposed to do? Uh, we kept them at that high state of readiness. The, um, the national uh, decision makers decided to go to actual DEFCON 3, which actually really didn't do much for us because we were already at that high, heightened state of readiness. It just changed us from exercise now to real world. And as the morning unfolded, uh, this continued until um, at strategic command until we got the notification that the president was coming to off at Air Force Base. So we, we really did not know that that was going to happen. He had stopped at Barksdale first to refuel the uh, Air Force One, and then they took off again into the skies. He had taken a message there. That message was broadcast after he left Barksdale. Probably about 20 minutes out of Barksdale, 30 minutes out of Barksdale is when we were notified. When the CIA representative at Stratcom came to me and said, the president's coming here. And I kind of, you know, had probably probably had a shocked look on my face, like uh, the president's coming here. Okay, in, in a sense that made sense because we were in the middle of the country, obviously a secure location. Um, we we were in an underground facility, once again secure. The thoughts at the time were, were where could he go to maintain his command and control of the nation and of our forces, and at the same time be safe. So clearly, off of was one of those places. Cheyenne Mountain would be another one, as you know, in, deep in granite in, in, uh, in Colorado. But to do that, he'd have to land in an, in an airfield and then be transported probably, you know, 45 minutes, an hour to the Cheyenne Mountain. So I think that's why they chose off at Air Force Base, the location, the secure underground, the communications capabilities. And as we were notified that he was going to be there, then we started to uh, build an intelligence brief for him because uh, across the world, uh, all commanders, the president included, the first thing they want when they get somewhere is an intelligence briefing. They want to know, what do you know? What's happening? Uh, what, what, is, what is the status? So we built the briefing for him. He landed. He came down to the underground. I gave him a presentation on what we knew and what we didn't know at the time. Uh, I had that information, all of the 
three-letter represent, re representatives, a national security agency, the CIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency, uh, the National Reconnaissance Office, all had representatives at Strategic Command, and they were all part of my staff, and they were feeding me information. Uh, so we built, we built a short briefing for him. He came in, uh, he, I gave him the presentation, then he joined um, into the conference talking to uh, the vice president, talking to the secretary of defense, talking to his national security advisor, and going through the status of what they knew and what they didn't know. At that time, it was still pretty much um, a dynamic situation. There were still a lot of aircraft that we weren't sure what their status were, was at the time. Uh, there were reports coming in all the time. Anything that was coming in became exaggerated. If there was something that was a little bit amiss uh, with an airplane, with the communications, that became exaggerated because you really didn't know what the outcome of that particular uh, event was going to be. Uh, following his participation, his being President Bush's participation in the conference, then uh, I took him up to a secure facility, video facility that we have, or that we had in uh, Strategic Command, and that's where he joined his National Security Council. The National Security Council once restated some of the information I said here. Uh, the entire things were going to be all right. Yes, we'd undergone an attack. Yes, it was catastrophic. Yes, uh, New York City, um, the plane in Pennsylvania, the Pentagon were attacked, but that we still had control of the nation. We still had control of our military forces and that uh, we, we, that he was uh, in charge and uh, things were going to turn around and work in the right direction based upon the information he was get, receiving. But he wanted to show the nation that, uh, that they could feel secure about the future at that point in time. So once his uh, National Security Council meeting was over, he said, I'm going home. And he, he and his team left immediately. Uh, there, there was no hesitation. They went out and jumped in Air Force One and flew away. We at Strategic Command at the time then started to gather more information and determine the status of our strategic forces, so the nuclear forces, and what was going to happen to them as the, as the rest of that day unfolded and as, the, uh, as more knowledge and events uh, took place. It wasn't long after that that we started to uh, support Central Command in developing targets for what eventually was the uh, going into Afghanistan. So strategic command kind of shifted at that point in time, still, still had our focus on the strategic indicators, Russia, China, North Korea, Iran, what they were, what was happening with them, but at the same time, having our targeting cell support the uh, central command in terms of helping them prepare for what they had to do in Afghanistan. That was so amazing. Yeah, that's kind of a long version there, sorry. <laughs> oh, no, no, I, I I was just so enamored with it. I mean, all of us remember where we were and what was going on that morning. And, um, you know, really interesting to hear all the stuff you guys are going through at that point. So the book is called Destination 9-11, Director of Intelligence on 9-11 Speaks Out for the First Time. Um, is some of your ability to be able to speak about this just because time and things can be told that couldn't be told? And how much of it is just because it's the 20th anniversary and people are interested? Uh, there, there's both. Part of it is because uh, a lot of things in the last 10 years have become uh, unclassified. They've been declassified, I guess is a better way to say it. And because they are now declassified, I was able to provide more insight into what was happening behind the scenes that day and in the events leading up to that day. Um, most of the conversations that occurred within the National Security Council or the President Bush had with his team were classified until just a few years ago. 
And because they are now unclassified, I was able to put those in the book with some context about what else was happening within uh, the national scene and in the strategic forces scene. And of course, the, the 20th anniversary coming, coming up kind of gave me a little bit of a nudge that plus COVID and a little bit of time during COVID uh, provided me that nudge to say, okay, if you're ever going to do this, probably now is the time to do it. Absolutely. So, and the of course, people got to get the, get the book. In fact, I'm going to um, put the link in the chat right now if somebody didn't see it in the description. Uh, but, uh, you know, because they want to read all of it. But is there anything that's kind of like, wow, that's really shocking that you share in the book that you can kind of tease us with? Well, I, you know, my intent was not to be shocking. I know that uh, putting dirt on somebody or a salacious story sells, but I wanted to make this as neutral as possible in terms of just being factual uh, as I understood what was happening at the time. I guess the biggest uh, knowledge or the, the piece that people would not know would be one that where we were with our strategic forces on that day that we were involved in the exercise, that there were nuclear weapons loaded, that had the president said, we're going to, and we, in course, if we would have had indications of a state actor and we wanted to make a military response, our military was on a high state of readiness that day. I don't know that people would know that already. Another piece that they probably, uh, I would think, would have very little insight to was what happened in the community with the president, uh, the vice president, the secretary of defense, when they were, when the president was at strategic command. What you normally would see uh, on a news report is that the president landed at Offutt Air Force Base. They would have a video possibly of him walking down um, or, or coming into a, a very small brick building, which we called the, the mole hole or the rabbit hole, and then him leaving. And in the intervening hour, hour and a half, two hours, there, there's nothing. There's nothing out there regarding that other than the president wanted to go back to Washington, D.C. The book provides some insight into the conversation that took place and what happened in the Strategic Command Underground during that time frame. So what is something that we know now that we didn't know then that we, uh, you know, as American people can do to be more prepared, to be, you know, to learn from that horrible incident? Uh, I think there are two things. One is that the indicators had been building over a period of time that may have given us a little bit of more insight into what was taking place. Of course, a lot of that came out in the 9-11 Commission about the training of the of the uh, the terrorists and their flight training and how they were learning to take off and fly but never to land the airplanes Th those are indicators but there are a lot of indicators out there there are always a lot of indicators that it it takes um, some luck it takes a lot of analysis to put the right pieces of that puzzle together to try and stop something like 9-11 from happening we see it all the time these days where an individual um, just recently had a lot of armament um, in an area and law enforcement goes in, they, they find it, they, they stop the individual, they, they, they collect the weapons that he had and the event doesn't take place, but then the story goes away because the event did not take place. Um, and, and that could have been a catastrophic event like what happened in Las Vegas with the individual shooting from the hotel. Had he been stopped ahead of time, you know, it wouldn't even have been a story. But the story occurs when it's not stopped ahead of time. And I think these happen every day. They happen every day in our law enforcement, who does a fantastic job stopping things from military, who's identifying potential catastrophic events and stop them what gets the news is stopped. Of course, on 9-11, it wasn't stopped. Uh, so I think people should be assured and reassured that their law enforcement, their, their military 
are uh, the FBI are out there every day trying to prevent and are preventing catastrophic events from occurring. I think that's a really good reminder because, you know, I think a lot of times we don't take credit of all the things that are happening that we just don't know about, you know, that will I mean, maybe someday be declassified that they really won't make a blip on the radar because who knows to look for, you know, the terrorist event that didn't happen. Correct. Well, I am and, so and excited. There are a lot of those about, are prevented. Yeah. I am so excited about the book. I have really exciting news that I get to share with you live. Um, yesterday, the book actually made it as number one in hot new releases. Um, and this morning, it is already in the United States. Oh, my goodness. Number one in at least seven categories that I found. And I'm still digging, so I'm sure there's more. But um, congratulations, you are now and will forever be a best-selling author. Um, and we're still, of course, watching the international numbers as they come in as well. Well, well thank, thank you, Steve. Thank you for letting me know that. That's, that's uh, surprising. You know, I, I wrote I wrote the story uh, one because it was a story that wasn't being told, but also for my kids and grandkids because although they're with me for, for part of that, you know, uh, what we do in the military a lot of time they, uh, our our families and and our kids don't have a full understanding or knowledge or sometimes appreciation of what goes on behind the scenes sometimes because it's classified sometimes because we just don't share it very often. Um, and I think we saw that a lot in, in any of the, from World War II to Vietnam to what happened in Afghanistan and Iraq, you know, the veterans come back and they don't share their stories. And there are a lot of stories out there I think that need to be shared. And I hope that they are shared because our, our military, our veterans, uh, we owe them a debt of gratitude and uh, their stories are compelling. This is a story, um, but it, there are hundreds, if not thousands of stories out there that are um, even more compelling than this one as to what, what they do every day. And I hope uh, somehow, some way, those stories get a chance to be shared with the American public. I do hope everybody will get their copy of Destination 9-11. General Kabak, I appreciate you spending some time with us here on the show today. Thank you, Steve. My pleasure. All I can say is wow. I mean, I could even say it backwards. Wow. What an amazing man on such a significant world-changing day that was there in the center of everything, held his cool, had the training, dealt with all the way up to the President of the United States, got the facts, kept the world from what could have easily become a world war. And I wonder sometimes if maybe that's what the thinking was on the part of the terrorists that day. And really significantly played the part that only he could play. Being a patriot for his country, absolutely. And also just thriving in the place that he was planted. Such an amazing story. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I know I didn't talk as much because I just wanted him to, to tell us more. I could have probably pretty much had him just spend a couple hours reading us the whole book. It was that good. I hope that you will get your copy and that it will help you live every day of your life as a thriving entrepreneur. We'll be right back. If you're an author who's on a mission, stand out with your brand out. <laughs> Check this out, guys. Yep, everything's marketing, and marketing is everything. Your existing book can become a best-selling book, or even, hey, like mine, a number one international best-selling book in five days. Listen, if your business isn't known by everybody, it's obscurity and that's death, right? The same thing is true for your book. If you're not happy with the way your book is performing, you got that far and then it just fell off the face of the planet, kind of feeling go to yourbestsellertoday.com schedule a talk with steve it's risk-free it's guaranteed 
it's proven. We've done it thousands of times. What are you waiting for? Yes, yourbestsellertoday.com. This time next week, you could have a beautiful seal on your book and get the attention that you deserve. Reach the people that you came to serve. Come on now. What are you waiting for? Grab a pen. Here we go. All you got to do is book a call, yourbestsellertoday.com. Go to yourbestsellertoday.com. Book a talk with Steve. It's proven. It's guaranteed. It's going to happen. All you have to do is say yes to your destiny. Welcome back to Thriving Entrepreneur. This is Steve. Welcome back. Thanks for listening to Thriving Entrepreneur today. I hope you enjoyed that first interview, even a tenth as much as I did. So amazing. Such incredible, incredible stuff that happened on those days. I really do hope that you learned some new things about that day in history and that from that you also were able to glean some information for yourself of how you can thrive as the person that you are, how you can take the challenges that come in your life, pivot to something that many, many years later leads to you being a linchpin person in one of the most momentous occasions that have happened in the last 100, maybe even 200 years. Really cool, super significant person and such a great book. Now we want to move on to our next international best-selling author, also with an amazing book, a challenge to citizens, a challenge to patriots, whatever political affiliation you might have, whatever philosophical, ideological belief you might have. The thing I appreciate most about this next author is the fact that he truly wants to start a conversation from a point of neutrality and discuss, just have everybody discuss their opinions. This is what I think, this is what I feel, this is what I believe, and then let's have a strong, solid conversation from there. And maybe we'll change our minds, but that's not really the point. It's about being together, being part of a great country, and making an impact as ourselves as a thriving entrepreneur. So I've said enough. Let's jump into the interview. Join me in welcoming Peter Montoya. Hey, Peter, how you doing today? Stephen, I'm doing great. Good seeing you. It's great seeing you too. So uh, your book is called The Second Civil War, A Citizen's Guide to Healing Our Fractured Nation. We want to talk about the book, but first tell us just a little bit about who you are and what you do in the world. <laughs> it's a great question. I'm a uh, a speaker, uh, I'm an author, and I'm also an entrepreneur. Uh, I've been uh, all three of those things now for almost 30 years. I've uh, owned and started uh, 12 different companies, published four best-selling books, and delivered three or 4,000 different keynote trainings and or presentations. So I'm a, a little bit unusual in the world. A lot, a lot of entrepreneurs try to write books and do speaking, uh, but those two uh, skill sets, both writing, creating content and speaking uh, and entrepreneuring are all uh, squarely in my wheelhouse. So, I mean, even the title is kind of ominous. The Second Civil War, mm -hmm. all of us have seen pictures, even maybe been to reenactments of, this, of the Civil War. Um, first, just kind of give us an outline of what your what you're meaning by the phrase the second civil war yeah hot civil wars is what we experienced back in 1861 where you have two different armies aligning on a battlefield trying to annihilate each other 620,000 american soldiers on both sides of those two different um armies died in that war which was almost three percent of our population today i would say we're still in a second civil war but it's largely a cold civil war and a cold a cold war is everything that's not violent um, and so this is largely a social civil war, and it's happening between friends and family and coworkers and people in the public. Almost everybody I know has either lost or has a severely damaged relationship with somebody else they know over political lines. So we are in a, the second civil war. This is not something that's forthcoming. It just happens to be cold, but it's affecting every single one of us at a very personal and painful level. So 
without getting into all the nuances of, you know, I love history. So I won't, we won't go into the depths of all of the causes of the first civil war, but um, you know, broad strokes, it was kind of a fight over slavery. Yes. Um, and uh, you know, so what is the, if there is a way to be able to broad stroke, what is the cause for this, this civil war? Great question. Cause you're right. The first civil war had very clear dividing lines. It was federal versus state powers uh, and slavery. Everyone knew exactly what that war was about. When we ask, what is, are these two sides fighting over? What are they fighting over? And I'm going to oversimplify uh, five things. There are some real policy distinctions. I'm going to put those aside for right now. But in large part, what this war is about is the other side is crazy. Uh, they have a separate reality from what I have. They are trying to destroy the country. We can't move forward without them. That's a, a very oversimplified view of about what this war is about. It's basically that we've been told, conditioned, indoctrinated by the media to believe that the other side is absolutely terrible, unlivable, and that we can't proceed uh, in a country with them. Mm. So, you know, before the first civil war happened, you had roughly half, we won't get to the exact numbers, but roughly half of the, of the states that seceded from being part of the United States. Um, you know, is there a possibility of there actually being fracturing where the 50 United States are now, you know, whatever other countries they want to call themselves? No. At that level? <laughs> yeah, so everyone wants to I see that Facebook post that says the East Coast and the West Coast, where all the liberals are, are going to peel away and the Senate of the country is going to be a Republican. It's just not going to happen. <laughs> so, what we could see is if this escalates, is the continuation of violence like we saw in 2020. So, about 32 people died um, last year because of political divisions. And this happened in the riots in major cities. Uh, it happened because of uh, terrorist attacks like bombings and shootings. Uh, and they were awful. Uh, I, we haven't quite had that many this year, and I hope it doesn't perpetuate, but it's really unlikely we see any kind of division that way. We are way too interconnected. And the business of our country is business. Um, and the chances of any major corporation backing the division uh, of separation of actual ge geography is next to impossible, next to, next to zero. Uh, and without money to actually fund two different sides or two different armies, it's just not going to happen. Mm, that's such a good point, you know, because we're you hear people talk about, well, and Texas is just going to secede. And it's like, well, <laughs> <laughs> the business of America is business. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and actually, I give them a lot of kudos. It sounds a little cynical, but actually business is what has been keeping us cooperating. So, uh, in, you know, in, in one way, there's been a, this awful tearing of our fabric. There's, you've heard this expression, the tearing of social fabric. And that is what we, you know, don't we feel alienated from our friends and we've been defriended on Facebook and we get into yelling arguments and we decide we can't see people anymore. It's really painful and it's really bad for our country. And in other regards, uh, America. American business has com completely soldiered on uh, in the last 12 years or the last four years. Our economy keeps growing. So we are all very good participants in making sure that we're consumers and buying things and then contributing our labor and our uh, entrepreneurship to keep building businesses. And so that part of the fabric of our, of our country is still doing relatively well. So, and I want to try to not get too controversial because we don't want to chase people away, but one of the issues is the definition of uh, terms. You know, what is our country? Is it a democracy? Mm -hmm. Is it a democratic republic? Is it, you know, should we become a socialist country? Do you think that there really is legitimately... Um, going to be like a massive political change, you know, like we go from what we are now to Russia, <laughs> you know, <Yeah>. or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> I, I know. And, and again, because we have the ballast of uh, American business. So any change that happens in our country happens in 
incredibly slowly. So we look back at American history and we kind of pick off these big major events, World War One, World War Two, the Civil War, Vietnam. And we look at them, we think of them as kind of these major sea changes, uh, but most likely they were happening over 20 or 30 years before the buildup of something happened. And then the, the vector change was really only very, very slight. Uh, there is a very strong libertarian streak in this country. Uh, that means an individualist streak, which means that we want to be have the freedom to pursue our own interests without being told what to do by the government. So the chances of our country becoming a socialist country are next to zero. Uh, is it possible that we may have more social institutions? So here are some of the social institutions we currently have in place. Fire, medical, uh, medical care, uh, military, social security, uh, massive Medicare systems. Um, so there are tons of so socialist systems that already exist in our country. Is it possible we might add a couple more over the following decades? Sure, completely possible. Uh, the chances of us becoming a, a communist, socialist, uh, dictator nation, highly unlikely. My dad used to always use the phrase, the more things change, the more they are the same. I think to some extent that kind of, <laughs> you know, really defines how it is. <laughs> um, now, I know one of the other issues is, is that every four years, you know, two years for the Congress, but every four years we have a presidential election. And really, if you go back through a course of all of history, with the exception of FDR, at least every eight years, it totally changes. It goes, you know, from Republican to Democrat and back or, you know, the Whig Party or whatever other, you know, parties they were. Do you think that there would ever really be a time when it's just like a one party kind of a thing? Or is it more likely, you know, we'll get a third party and like a libertarian maybe would even get elected? Yeah, the two major parties are really entrenched and the likelihood of them, either one of them being dislodged, becoming irrelevant or a third party coming into play uh, in any time in the near future is really, really um, unlikely. So there every once in a while are these major upheavals uh, and we do see radical changes, but it doesn't look likely right now because it's not just that we have parties and politicians that are pretty equally divided. But on top of that, you have these huge media ecosystems that support both the parties. You have dozens of large media companies, cable, internet, magazines, newspapers, and then you have all the subsidiaries, hundreds if not thousands of podcasters and radio shows and television shows which are aligned and invested in their given parties. Uh, is it, it, It's just really unlikely that there's going to be enough momentum, which someone would need billions of dollars billions. I mean, I, I mean, I can't tell you how many billions of dollars. So even like Jeff Bezos type billions to actually launch a, a legitimate new third party, it would be really, really hard. So the book is Second Civil War, but the subtitle is A Citizen's Guide to Healing Our Fractured Nation. Yeah. So let's talk about healing. What, what can we as citizens do to make it better? That's a great question because it, it, it really is all in our hands. Um, and the book, it, I've, I've been talking a lot about these kind of large political overtures, but the book is really lit, written for everyday people. So there is a little bit of political science in the book. There is a little bit of sociology, a little bit of psychology, but it really is written. If you want to sum up what the book's about, it's my view on uh, patriotism. Um, so uh, I don't have a couple things that's really important to know. Uh, I don't own the monopoly on truth. Uh, my perception of reality is just as delusional as anybody else's. Uh, I also uh, don't have uh, a monopoly on what patriotism is, but I had never seen a book written that really described for me in detail exactly how to be a good citizen. So this book really is written for an individual who has lost relationships, has watches the news and feels this overwhelming anxiety, who feels frustrated and like they want to pull out their hair because they don't know what to do. The book is really accessible and really written for uh, an everyday American to give them practical ideas to reduce their anxiety, repeal the, uh, repair their relationships, and then also be more effective in advocating 
which we have a responsibility to do in our democracy. And so I'll give you, a, there's a couple different things we could do. And the first thing you should do is eliminate all media that attacks another American. So I hope uh, that you uh, fight for your ideas and advocate for your ideas. I think it's really important that in the marketplace of our ideas, that ideas are argued and fought for. It's a really good idea. It's very, very important to our democracy. But do not give patronage. Do not pay money, time, or attention to any media personality, politician, political group, um, media organization that attacks and vilifies other Americans. All it does, two things, is number one, in your mind, it objectifies the other group, which will help uh, you do increasingly more awful things. So whenever you want to uh, hurt somebody else, if this happens in, in Africa all the time, when they have those, those warlords start attracting, attracting young kids, the first thing they do is they objectify the other side. And they start using words and labels to degrade the other side. So hopefully these young kids will go out there and actually do heinous, horrible, murderous things. And the same thing happens here. So we're not killing people, but more on a cold level, that the more we can vilify the other side, the more likely you are to alienate them in some way. So and the other thing uh, that it does when we vilify somebody else is it further separates them from us. It calcifies them away from us and makes it less likely for them to even enter the public arena to share ideas. So anybody who is actually vilifying another American, vilifying another American group, the only party they are benefiting is our enemies. So every single time you attack another American or you, you, you give money with, or your attention to a podcaster or a news outlet that is vilifying another American, here's the only people who win. Russia, Iran, Iraq, North Korea, um, China, uh, without America's leadership, which has really been vacant for the last five to 10 years on the national stage, our rivals and our enemies are running the table because we're so busy fighting ourselves. So this kind of sounds hyperbolic, but it's absolutely true. Every single time you attack another American, our enemies and our rivals win. Mm. That's so powerful. Um, and yet, especially with this last year, you know, because we were all locked in for, you know, a year. It seems like we didn't go anywhere for like mm -hmm. a year. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, so a lot of TV was watched, a lot of uh, blog posts, podcasts, all of that. So we're kind of like Cold War version of trench warfare dug yeah. in, you know? Yeah. Uh, you, you're absolutely right. This last year and a half of the pandemic was really terrible uh, because we were kind of just kind of locked in and saturated in this tinderbox of hate. And we were constantly being pumped full of fear and hatred of the other side. We didn't have any of the national events that often produce um, water cooler conversation. We didn't go to the office on Monday morning and say, hey, what did you think about the Super Bowl, the World Series, the NBA Finals? Uh, hey, did you hear about this new movie that came out, the new um, Avengers movie that came out? None of those national unifying stories happened. We couldn't communicate and connect with people on human levels. We couldn't even ask what you did this weekend. So all we were ended up doing was getting pumped full of fear. Then we would go online and see the other side who's being pumped full of fear. And then we would sit there and rage against one another. So, yeah, the pandemic was really bad uh, for the festering of the second civil war this last 18 months. And we, so first of all, if someone's sitting here going, well, yeah, Peter, the other side needs to hear this. They need to change. Listen, we are a people of personal responsibility. And as a people of personal responsibility, you know the following. You can't change anyone but yourself. So all this change starts with you. Stop pumping your head full of hateful media. Stop attacking other people uh, and realize the only way to help us build our empathy and our ability to cooperate is through relationships. If you don't like someone's opinion um, on politics or on social issues or on a racial issue, 
facts won't won't change their mind the only thing will change their mind is being in an empathetic relationship over time that is so good man i hope everybody i, I wish i had the ability to rewind while we're talking live and play that whole thing again that was so good i hope that people that are listening on replay will actually rewind that and listen to it again so the book is called The Second Civil War, A Citizen's Guide to Healing Our Fractured Nation. It's by Peter Montoya. I am going to drop the uh, link in. You can get it actually today for free um, on Amazon. Get the ebook, and, you know, you're going to end up wanting to buy the hardcover, the paperback version of it as well. So, Peter, before we go, give people just like a step one. Let's uh, talk to that person who is again, entrenched, Mm -hmm. hasn't wanted to change at all. What is Mm -hmm. one simple thing they can do without feeling like they lost, you know, so not wave the right flag, Mm -hmm. but that they could do uh, what's one thing they could do today. That's great. So one thing they can do today is this, is you stop believing what you think. So there is a concept in social uh, sociology called naive realism and naive realism is where we become disillusioned that our view of reality is reality and that anybody who does not believe our reality is an idiot. Uh, That is called naive realism. Uh, Every single human being on this planet, including myself, is delusional. And that's a lowercase d, not a capital D. And delusional means we do not see reality the way that it is. We see the reality the way that we are. Reality is a construct that's been created in your head. So if you are feeling anxious and angry and hateful and resentful and vengeful to any degree against other Americans, uh, you can change that. You can still advocate for your ideas. You will still vote for the candidates and the policies which are in our best interest. You'll just do so being a lot less anxious of a person. So my book, I made it as practical and easy to read as possible. If you've ever picked up a political science book before, there's it's not broken up. There's no list. There's no quotes. You're just reading for pages for page for page. That's uh, not my book. My book is really, really easy to read. And I've asked my friends whenever they're reading it uh, to bookmark it uh, and to write in it. And what I notice is, is they are underlying and highlighting and circling things. There's ton of tons of practical, really use inf- useful information in this book. So please do buy it. Uh, also, please buy a softbound copy of it and give it to that person who you go, why is that? Why are they always angry about politics? Why is that all they could ever talk about? Uh, this is the book that will help change the vector of where they're headed. And uh, the other thing I'll tell you in the last is I'm having a hard time getting national media. So I've got a great PR agency. I've got a good name. Uh, I put out best-selling books before, but I'm not getting booked on the national uh, news channels. And the reason being is I'm not partisan. They're not interested in this centrist message. But what I've discovered in every single person that I've talked to is they're hungry for this. They want unity. So help me prove the national media wrong. Uh, Please buy this book and get yourself dislodged from the war. You, person by person, can pull yourself out of this civil war and together we can heal our, our great nation. Peter, thank you so much for that. I really appreciate it because we do need, we, we need so much more just discussions about unity and helping one another versus, you know, stabbing each other in the back. <laughs> if somebody wants to go deeper with you, um, is there a way that they can get in contact with you? Sure. Well, first of all, you can visit my website. My earlier book was on personal branding. So my website is just petermontoya.com, petermontoya.com. Uh, and I'm also doing right now uh, free webinars uh, for any group of 20 or more people on this topic. And you may notice that I'm apolitical. I'm nonpartisan. Uh, I've got a message of hope and some practical steps. So if you have a company or a group of friends or a church group and you want to do a zoom call like this uh, i will do one for you if you got 20 or more people um and you can just contact me uh contact my staff at info info at petermontoya.com info at petermontoya.com give us the details of your group and we will get uh, a zoom meeting scheduled and i will talk and a 
passionate but nonpartisan way, giving practical ideas on how we all can work together to heal our nation. I love it. The book is called The Second Civil War, A Citizen's Guide to Healing Our Fractured Nation by Peter Montoya. The link is both in the description as well as in the comments. Do get your free copy today and uh, reach out to Peter. Get a small group of people together. Get some people that you disagree with together and have the only thing you say is, hey, I'm not asking you to change. I'm just asking you, let's both listen with an open heart and see what maybe a difference that can make in our world. Peter, thank you so much for spending some time with us on the show here today. Stephen, thank you. It was so much fun. I really appreciate you having me. Was that challenging to you? Was that a breath of fresh air? There are so many reasons why we can be at odds with each other because we do have differing opinions from everybody, even the people that have same similar affiliations, we are our own person and we have our own thoughts and feelings about things. Um, But it's such a refreshing concept to think about just simply listening to people, understanding as best as we can, letting them have their opinions and, and then also stating ours. It doesn't mean we need to give up who we are in order for somebody else to be who they are. It's just about the fact that As my dad used to say, there's a reason why God gave us two ears and one mouth. So we listen twice as much as we talk. You know, some of you that have been my followers for a long time now will remember Wasilla's book way back December 4th of 2016 that was called Listen, Think, Speak. She was a political official from, uh, you know, from from the Netherlands and uh, had come over here, worked on actually the Hillary Clinton campaign way back you know, before that election, and uh, and then wrote her book to begin the process of a very similar kind of thing as Peter's talking about, and that's having conversations, especially the difficult ones, the ones that we have shied away from talking about for so long. I think to be good patriots, good citizens, good people, and most importantly, thriving entrepreneurs, I think it's time that we get to a place where we can communicate with one another. I use that word communicate very specifically because there's a difference between just spewing words and communicating with someone. When we care enough about the other person's opinion to listen, think about what they say, and then also speak our truth. It doesn't mean either of us needs to change. It just purely means that we appreciate and want other people in our lives and we want their input because we know that differing opinions, wise counsel comes from many heads, from many different viewpoints and some of the things we get advised we won't follow and some of them will be a total new enlightenment thinking of something a way that we had never thought about it before. And in the midst of all of that of course is the fact that you too are uniquely brilliant You were created for a purpose, and the world needs you. As you're significantly you, as you maximize while it's called today to be the best you you can be, the best patriot, the best person, and especially the most thriving of entrepreneurs, you will make the difference that only you can make in this world. And that is more than anything else I can think of. That is what I think of when I think of thriving. I hope that you will take that to heart, that you will apply the things that you believe in your life wholeheartedly, that you will have an amazing and great week. Thanks for listening to Thriving Entrepreneur today. If you want to get your question answered, send an email to questions at wehelpyouthrive.com. We look forward to you joining us again next time. who's on a mission, stand out with your brand out.
<laughs> Check this out, guys. Yep, everything's marketing, and marketing is everything. Your existing book can become a best-selling book, or even, hey, like mine, a number one international best-selling book in five days. Listen, if your business isn't known by everybody, it's obscurity and that's death, right? The same thing is true for your book. If you're not happy with the way your book is performing, you got that far and then it just fell off the face of the planet kind of feeling, go to yourbestsellertoday.com. Schedule a talk with Steve. It's risk-free. It's guaranteed. It's proven. We've done it thousands of times. What are you waiting for? Yes, yourbestsellertoday.com. This time next week, you could have a beautiful seal on your book and get the attention that you deserve. Reach the people that you came to serve. Come on now. What are you waiting for? Grab a pen. Here we go. All you got to do is book a call, yourbestsellertoday.com. Go to yourbestsellertoday.com. Book a talk with Steve. It's proven. It's guaranteed. It's going to happen. All you have to do is say yes to your destiny. You are-